Well, thanks, Dave and team, for uh, inviting us to reflect on some constants. Uh, as I got here this morning, I, I bumped into Glenn. He was playing this morning, and I, Glenn asked how I was doing, and I was like, well, I'm, I don't know, fine, I guess. Um, and then he sort of pushed me on that because I sort of hesitated, and it's like, oh, I, I've kind of lost track. I have just hard... Simple questions in the pandemic have become harder and harder to answer, like, how am I doing? I don't know. It's a good day if I remember it's 2021, actually, like, I, if I remember which year I'm in, like, time has felt weird, and, and it's just, yeah. So, you know, this is where we find ourselves, uh, still uh, grappling with uh, life not the way we want it, uh, and for some people this week, really not how they want it. So you will undoubtedly be aware, I think many of you are aware, that uh, Derek Sproul un unexpectedly passed away this week. Um, and that is uh, Derek's son of Greg. Um, and the Sproul family is sort of well integrated into this church community. You, many of you are friends with, with parts of that family or friends, you're friends with Derek over the years. Um, so that just sort of ripples out. And this is where we find ourselves. And I, I spent, you know, some early part of my week sort of preparing my sermon. I was going to talk to you about the Synoptic Gospels, which is it's very compelling, right? Uh, you're really like, yeah, Synoptics. Um, it's okay. You're going to get that sermon still, so you're not off the hook. But <laughs> and it's much more compelling than you realize. However, it felt like that's not where our community is living this week. So Susan and I uh, spent some time talking and praying this week, and um, we made all kinds of modifications late in the week, so I'm finding myself on Thursday uh, writing a completely different sermon, and, and these guys modified uh, all kinds of things. Um, and I want to just draw your attention, I think, to... Uh, so last week was Resurrection Sunday, and I made the statement that I believe, I firmly believe that Jesus' resurrection actually changes our reality and changes our lives. Um, but then we find ourselves this week, some of us, uh, still sort of floundering. Um, and things we've hoped for, um, and so for the Sproul family, obviously things they've hoped for and longed for have, have not turned out the way that they had imagined. And, and, but for many of us, um, as this pandemic continues, there's been all kinds of losses. Um, and I don't want to play losses against each other and all of that, but they're losses. Um, I can name you people who've had to make um, massive modifications to wedding plans, or they've lost their job, or they can't go on a vacation, they've spent years planning, or they've... And, you, you know, I, I don't get to see my parents very often. They're in their 80s. That window of time is shrinking where I can still visit with them and I want to visit with them. I, I see them online. Um, my eldest brother is in perpetual quarantine as a pilot. You know, like, these are all losses and they sort of stack up on, on, on top of each other and we are sometimes, I think, left with, like, you know, so I make a statement and you may even believe the statement that the resurrection changes things and yet here we are still struggling and... and and our hopes aren't playing out the way we'd imagined. And so I want to draw you atten your attention to a familiar story that takes place on Resurrection Sunday. I'm going to read the whole story to you, even though it's familiar, and maybe invite you to hear this story in a slightly different way. So it's from Luke chapter 24, and it takes place on Resurrection Sunday, that first 
Resurrection Sunday. Here's how the text reads. Now that same day, two of them, two followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know about the things that have happened here in these last days? Don't miss the irony of this part of the story. Are you the only one who doesn't know? What things? Jesus asked. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And some of our women have amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us what they'd seen, and they'd seen this vision of angels who said that he was alive. And well, then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, he explained to them all, uh, sorry, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, hey, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day's almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up scripture to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. It's a familiar story, I think, to many of us. It's actually one of my favorite uh, resurrection encounter and sto uh, stories. Let me just set the, the, the scene a little bit for you, right? So these are early followers of Jesus. Jesus had been um, an itinerant preacher. He'd been on the scene publicly for, you know, scholars think about three years. And along the way, he'd collected a small group of followers. And these two, uh, maybe not part of the 12, but they were part of um, that slightly larger group of followers. Um, who'd sort of put their stake in Jesus. You can hear that. We had hoped <laughs> that he would be the one, 
right? So Jesus comes, he's announcing the kingdom, he's saying I'm gonna redeem um, creation, really, not just Israel. Um, But then on that Friday, what we call Good Friday, what they almost certainly didn't call Good Friday, it all came crashing down, right? And Jesus is crucified, and everything they have staked their life on comes crashing down. All their dreams, all their hopes, you can hear it. We had hoped, and we had hoped, but it all came crashing down. And yeah, they've heard some rumors about, you know, a resurrection or something, you know, Jesus' body at least not being there, but the rumors are rumors, right? They don't know what to think. And so these two followers, they do the only thing they can think of to do, which is to let's get out of Jerusalem. (laughs) We don't want to be here anymore. It reminds us, it's too painful. It reminds us of all our hopes, all our dreams, everything we've staked our lives on, it's all come crashing down, and rumors aren't going to sustain that. And so let's just leave. Well, where did they go? Well, they went to Emmaus. And let me pick up. I've read some of this to you before, perhaps, but it's Frederick Beekner, and he says it really well. So let me just quote from him. Where did they go? They went to Emmaus. And where was Emmaus, and why did they go there? Well, it's no place in particular, really. And the only reason they went there is that it was some seven miles distant from a situation that had become unbearable. Do you understand what I mean when I say that there there is not one of us who has not gone to Emmaus with them? Emmaus can be a trip to the movies for the sake of seeing a movie or to a cocktail party for the sake of cocktails. Not anymore, of course, COVID era, but, you know, imagine, you used to go to movies um, and parties. Emmaus might be buying a new suit or a new car or whatever else you buy online or taking one more drink than you really want or need or reading a second-rate novel. Emmaus is going to, could be going to church on Sunday. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred. That even the wisest and the bravest and the loveliest decay and die. Even the noblest ideas that men have had about love and freedom and justice have always in, the, in time been twisted out of shape by selfish men for selfish ends. Emmaus is where we go where these two went to try and forget the Forget about Jesus and the great failure of his life. Right? It's, Emmaus is the place we go when life doesn't work out the way we want, where it falls apart, where the things we'd hoped for, the things we'd dreamed just come crashing down. We've all been in those places, I suspect, more than once in this past year. We find ourselves walking this road thinking, okay, God, (laughs) like, why haven't you shown up? Or maybe more particularly, why haven't you shown up the way I need you to show up or want you to show up? And you begin asking, does God care, maybe? Or perhaps you begin asking, does God exist? 
God just some distant idea or disconnected from where I really live? Like, does it make any difference at all? I made this claim that the resurrection matters. Does it? Did it for these guys? They're not sure. They've only heard rumors. But this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves sometimes on this road to Emmaus and we're not actually sure anymore if what we've staked our lives on uh, will actually hold us. Picking up again from Frederick Buechner. But there are some things that even in Emmaus we cannot escape. Yeah, we can escape our troubles at least for a while. We can escape the job we didn't get or the friend we hurt. We can escape for a while the awful suspicion that life makes no sense and that the religion of Jesus is not just a bunch of wishful thinking. But the one thing we cannot escape from is life itself. The fact that I'm here on this earth and I'm a living human being with blood in my veins and breath in my lungs. We cannot escape getting hungry. We cannot escape eating. We cannot escape walking or driving down some potholed road in Calgary to get from one place to the next. My point is this, Beekner writes, my point is this, it is precisely at such times as these that life is going to ask us questions that we cannot escape for long. Questions about where the road we're traveling is finally going to take us. About whether food is enough to keep us alive, like truly alive. About who we are. And, and who is this stranger on the road behind us? In other words, it is precisely at such times as these that Jesus is apt to come into the very midst of life at its most real and most inescapable. I don't, and I don't, uh, I haven't loved, you know, all kinds of things in this past year, any more than you have. And there have been sort of greater ups and downs, and again, for some people, this past week has been a huge loss. But it is precise, and this is the first thing I want to say about this story, it's precisely as we walk on this road to Emmaus where we're just kind of questioning it all, where it's all come crashing down and we're not sure if anything sacred is left, if anything we've staked our lives on actually matters. It's precisely here that Jesus walks with us, as he did with these two followers. And what does Jesus do when he walks with them? Well, seemingly the most human of things. He listens. And don't miss that. It's a great moment in the story where he comes and walks alongside them and he says, what are you discussing? And they say, well, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on? And clearly he's the only one that does know what's going on. All right, huge irony, don't miss it. But... I love Jesus' response. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of lean into that ironic moment and say something sarcastic. He says, what things? How beautiful, how marvelous that the God of the universe who knows all things, that the resurrected Jesus who knows exactly what has been going on this past weekend in Jerusalem would reach out to these two followers and say, 
Tell me. You tell me. And he takes the posture of a listener on that road of shattered dreams and disappointment, that road to Emmaus, as he comes and walks alongside these discouraged followers where it's all fallen apart, the first thing he does is say, tell me, what things? What a beautiful moment. In the gospel story, that Jesus listens to us. And the disciples are these, well, they're followers, these followers of of early followers, they kind of lay out the story as they know it. And then Jesus does another very human thing. He speaks. And notice when he speaks, he draws them back to the larger story, the very story that we've been trying to pay attention to this year, right? The creation story of God's good creation, how that creation has been been distorted and tainted and destroyed and broken by sin, the things that we experience. And how Jesus enters that story and is seeking to redeem it and make it good again. And he draws them, it says, by beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's the very story that we've been paying attention to this past year. We've said early on in this series, the Bible is a unified story that points us to Jesus. And this is Jesus showing us the exact same thing. He uses Moses and the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, who knows what prophets he called in. And says, this story is leading toward me. And he invites them to take their disappointment and their broken dreams and, their di- and, and just their discouragement and to see it in the context of a larger story, a story where God is still at work, where God is still mending a broken creation. God is still mending broken lives. And so their reality is their reality. They are sad. They are discouraged. Their hopes have been shattered. But Jesus just, as he hears that, invites them to place it into a larger story and not forget that. And he invites me to do the same. And he invites you to do the same. As we find ourselves in these discouraging times, we're like, what does it all mean anyway? Let's just go to Emmaus. Nothing makes sense anymore. And as Jesus comes beside us, invites us to remember that where you live is part of a larger story. And God's in that story. Redeeming it. Making it good again. And then the last thing that he does in this story, in this particular story, also a very human of things, is he eats with them. He breaks bread with them. He he stops and he grabs, they invite him to supper and he grabs a bread maybe like this and he, he takes it and he gives thanks for it and he just breaks it right before them and then offers it to them. And at that moment, their eyes are opened and they see Wait a minute, this stranger beside us, it's Jesus. I love that he's seen eating with them. Jesus, there's all kinds of stories in the Gospels of Jesus eating. It's one of the things he gets into trouble for, actually. It's not so much that he's eating, but who he's eating with. 
Because for the Jewish people of that time, and maybe even still today, and for many cultures actually, um, maybe not so much Western culture on this, but many cultures, eating is, um, it's a relational event. It's not just let's stuff our face with some food and get on with life. I mean, that whole fast food thing, don't get me started. All right. Eating is a, is a relational exchange. You eat with someone is, is, is to be in relationship with him. And that's why Jesus got into trouble when he was eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And the Pharisees were up in arms about this because it wasn't just he was having a snack with somebody and then moving on. He was, he was cat- putting his lot in with them. He was saying, these are my friends. I'm in relationship with these folks. And here in this story, it picks up again. Jesus uh, gives these followers the dignity and the honor of sitting down for a meal together. And it's this relational exchange, and in this meal, their eyes sort of, they, whatever it is that they couldn't see, all of a sudden they could. And they realize Jesus is in our midst. Uh, presumably, they're in Emmaus, the, their destination, the place they're going to to escape, and that's where Jesus shows up. And so, friends, I just want you to hear the story. I'm not throwing this out there and saying, well, here's three things you can copy. You should listen to your friends and you should speak to them about God's truth and you should eat with, I mean, for sure. Those are good things to do as a community um, and we should do those things. But what I really want you to hear in the story is this is what Jesus does for us in the place we find ourselves in. Jesus still walks with us on this road to Emmaus because we're still on that road. Jesus still comes alongside and he listens. He wants to hear maybe what he already knows, but he wants you to say it to him. He wants you to throw out your complaints, your disappointments, your sadness, your anger, your frustration, your joy. Jesus Jesus is still saying, what things? Tell me, what things? He delights in the conversation. Jesus invites us back into the story of God, which is a redemptive story. God is making things new again. Not always on my timeline, for sure. But it is the story we're in. And if I believe anything at all, I believe that God is at work in that story. God is at work. And then he invites us into a deeper relationship with him and with each other. And so this is where we land ourselves. We're going to do the very thing that Jesus does in the story, symbolically for sure. There'll come a time yet where we will be able to have meals together. And, and what a wonderful time that will be. Um, but for now, we will... Um, you know, in symbolic ways, we'll pick up that thread of the story and have a meal, a shared meal, communion. What Jesus shared with these followers and now shares with us. And I want to just pick up a thread on this. Um, we often read, and rightly so, um, the text in Corinthians where Paul gives instructions about communion. And I tend to read the first part of that and not the second. And this time I'm going to read the second and not so much. The first is where he says, you know, this is, you know, he he gives instructions about the bread representing Jesus' broken body given for us, the cup representing Jesus' blood shed for us. 
But then he says this, he says, so as he's writing to this Corinthian church, and by association writing to Varsity Church, he says, so whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone who ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, drink judgment on themselves. And it's this phrase, um, an, you know, coming to this meal in an unworthy manner. And I, you don't need a second sermon, you're not gonna get one, it's very technical. And, but it can't possibly mean that I have to somehow to clean up my life to show up here. I'm always unworthy. I'm always broken before God. Right? Like there's always parts of my life that aren't as, I'm, you know, I, I, I flounder in, I'm ashamed of. God gets that. So that, it can't possibly mean that you've got to be perfect somehow to show up to this meal. I think what Paul is getting at and the body of Christ can either refer to literally the body of Jesus or the body of Christ Paul uses liberally as a phrase to refer to the church. And he's inviting us to remember the church, I think, and remember each other. Or at least that's part of it, I'm sure. And so that's why when Susan and I met on Thursday and we spent some time talking and praying, we... we it just felt tone deaf to me to teach to you about the synoptics. I want to recognize the body and where the body is. And the body's grieving, at least part of the body, and when one part of the body grieves, the whole body grieves. Also from Paul's letters. And we just still want to honor that fact that, that this has been a difficult time, particularly for some, but for many. And then I'm also aware, and I mean, the pandemic has maybe revealed many things to us, uh, but certainly one thing it's revealed is deep fractures in our society, right? Um, and those fractures play out here too, right? I read some story last week about, you know, 40% of the people think that the government's not doing nearly enough to address pandemic issues and 40, of Albertans, okay? And then 40 2% are thinking they haven't, they, they're doing way too much and they've overreach and overstep and they shouldn't put in these kind of restrictions. So that's pretty divided. And there's 12% who think they're doing it just about right. And then there's like that mystery 5% who, I don't know what, they're <laughs> signing up to go to the Mars or something. I don't know where that, that mystery 5% is. But, but the point is, those, 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 those feelings, those thoughts, those opinions, they show up here in this community. I've had all kinds of conversations along that line. And I want to say to you, you, it's fine that you have all those opinions, it's fine, but that should not divide us. <laughs> we gather around this table as one community, we gather around Jesus. I'm not called to put my hope in a government response, ultimately. When it all comes crashing down, the government's not going to fix it for me. I'm grateful that we have government in this country. I'm not knocking that. But as Christians, we don't gather around a table to celebrate that we're united about uh, political opinions or how the government's handled the pandemic. That's not what we're gathering around this table about at all. This table is a symbol of we gather around this, 
the broken bread that represents Jesus' broken body, the cup that represents his shed blood, because all of us are in desperate need of Jesus. And the table is the great leveler. It actually doesn't matter what you think about this or that or the other thing. You need Jesus. Or, you know, you've had a rough week or a rough month or a rough year. You need Jesus. And so we come to this table, actually, as a united people in need, united in our need for Jesus. And Jesus stands at the center. Just as Jesus stands at the center of that journey to Emmaus, his presence, he's right there. Jesus stands at the center of this meal. This is the meal that unites us. And so it unites us in our perhaps shared grief, solidarity. As we remember Jesus' death and resurrection, it unites us in the fact that we have opinions and that's fine, but ultimately we can be together because of Jesus. This is what will keep us together. So friends, let me just read the first part of the Corinthian text to you. Um, and then we're going to play a song, hopefully. We've had some trouble with that technology this morning. Uh, hopefully there'll be a song. If there's no song, then just feel free to just sit in silence uh, for a time. And I'm going to invite you during that time of silence to take the bread and receive it as God's gift. Right? Jesus is the host of this meal in the same way he was in Luke chapter 24 in Emmaus. He was the host at the meal. He broke the bread. He gave it. We need this nourishment for the journey we're on and then take the juice as a remembrance of God's sacrifice, God's free gift of mercy to us. And so I leave it, uh, let me read this text and then I'll leave some space for you to just partake. If you're in the room, I think we've given instructions enough. There's two lids to that. You're gonna take the little um, red lid, the cellophane lid off first and that'll give you access to the cracker, the wafer, and the second lid will give you access to the juice. Um, and I encourage you to keep the cup upright as you pull those lids off or you'll have juice everywhere, um, few logistics. But just take some time. There'll be, a, like I say, a song playing in a moment, uh, hopefully, otherwise silence. Um, but friends, Jesus is with you. When you find yourself on the most discouraging of roads, and he's with you in the most human of ways. Jesus listens, he speaks, and he desires to share this meal with you. Friends, this is good news. This is hopeful news. The resurrected Jesus walks with you. For I receive from the Lord what I also now pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and I might add here what they means by that, the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. Friends, Jesus is with you and he invites you to this table, the gifts of God for the people of God.
Let's partake together.